We're going to be in Genesis 11, beginning in verse 1. We'll be tackling 10 and 11 this Wednesday. Story you probably have heard. Verse 1, Genesis 11, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And Yahweh came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of men had built. And Yahweh said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So Yahweh dispensed them from over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there Yahweh confused the language of all the earth. And from there, Yahweh dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Well-known story. Let me begin by asking this question. Have you ever said, that's the last straw? If you're a parent, you have said that. Maybe it was about a car you owned, that's the last straw. Maybe it was about a house Maybe it was about a job or a career or a college or whatever it is. You just say, that's the last straw. And you change direction. Well, I had one of those moments about two weeks ago. Uh, Three years before that, three and a half years ago, I bought a 27-inch iMac off Craigslist. Thought, man, this is going to be an awesome computer for us. Well, for three and a half years, I have worked on that computer. Replaced components, replaced that, replaced this. So two weeks ago, I said... That's the last straw. And we were making a dump run, so I grabbed that 27-inch iMac, and I went out the door, and as I was going out the door, my nine-year-old son, Elijah, I looked at him, and I thought, huh. And I asked him, Lodge, should we shoot this computer? (laughs) To which he responded, oh, no, Father, that would be dangerous. (laughs) He's like, yeah, can I shoot it? So I have a 45 revolver handgun, and the only reason why I have it is because my older brother, who's since passed away, gave it to me. And I haven't shot the thing in 20 years. Shot it with him 20 years ago. So I had to dig it out and find it, and I get this 45, and I set up the computer and put the earplugs in, and Gabrielle's got a video camera on the whole thing. And I'm thinking 45, like, it's going to destroy this thing. It'll be so satisfying, right? Like, 
A 44 is the most powerful handgun known to man, according to Dirty Harry. This is bigger. It's a 45. So it's just going to blast this thing. So I shoot that iMac. It doesn't even go through it. Like, I was so disappointed. I'm like, what in the world? Right? I guess iMacs are bulletproof. So if you are being attacked by snipers, hide behind your iMac. You'll be protected. If you need one, I've got one, and it'll give you a really good deal on a bulletproof iMac. <laughs> That's right. The final straw is I'm not doing this anymore. I'm switching directions. Genesis 11 is, I think, God saying, That's the last straw. Okay, we're doing something different. So, to catch you up, if you have not been with us in Genesis, let me recap really quick what we've seen because Genesis really parts at chapter 12. So, in chapters 1 through 11, here's what we've seen. The spiral down of sin. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve partake of the forbidden fruit, treason against the king of the universe. Chapter 4, murder, vengeance, polygamy, violence. Chapter 5 is just a table of nations. Chapter 6, these really powerful, wicked men begin to accumulate to themselves these massive harems of women. I'll take what I want. I'll take whatever I want. The Nephilim, these crazy, whatever they are, are there. The Rephim are there. It's bad. It's violence. It's bad, bad, bad. God says flood. Chapter nine, after the flood. Are things better? Hmm, Noah, drunk, naked, sexual weirdness in chapter nine, right? So you've got all these bad things happening and yet nowhere does God say, okay, that's it. That was the last straw. It's only when you get to chapter 11 that what you see is God makes a massive change in chapter 12. From chapters one through 11, God's been dealing with all people as a group collectively. The nations, chapter 10 tells us, God's dealing with the nations. But in chapter 12, God says, I'm changing. I'm doing something different now. And he grabs one guy. The guy's name is Abraham. Abraham is then selected by God and God for the rest of the Bible really begins to work through this one guy named Abraham and his son named Isaac and his son named Jacob. And Jacob have tw has 12 sons that become the 12 tribes of Israel. And that's really, the Old Testament runs through that. And the rest of the nations, it's as if God put pause on them to do this plan through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the 12 tribes. Massive, massive change, right? Now, God still worked with the nations. You can see that interspersed in the Old Testament. But the majority is, I'm going to move my plan to renew humanity through this line right here. It culminates in Jesus, all right? So it's a big change. So what in the world happened in this story where God says, that's the last straw. Things have to change. It's pretty important to know so I think let's investigate. What is it? Let's read the story again and let's ask that question. Is that the last straw? So we get verse one. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. Is that the problem? Does God hate unity? Like a one world kind of place, does God hate that? Because there's ideas of that, I think. Well, I'll tell you, I went to Mexico a couple of weeks ago and I wish the whole world spoke one language 
because it's really difficult being there. I can essentially tell people my name and ask to go to the bathroom. And that is it. It's not useful in most places. Like I can't order tacos and I couldn't get gas and there's all these things I could not do, right? So I wished we still spoke one language. In America, you know what? We don't all speak the same language. Do you know that? So when I was first starting in business in 1996, I went from here to the southern part of South Carolina. And I went down there because we sold equipment to a Department of Defense site and they put it on this massive tower. It was 1,200 feet tall. And so every year they'd have to service the equipment on this tower. Well, we went there and this redneck decided, I'm not climbing that tower anymore. That's way too high. So he put a pulley on the top of the tower, 1,200 feet in the air, ran a cable up the middle of the tower over that pulley and down the other side. So once a year, when he had to service that equipment, he would back his F-250 up there, jack up one side, take off the tire, put on this barrel thing, take one side of that cable that was on the outside, attach it to the barrel. He would climb into this little basket and connect it to that cable inside the tower, get on a walkie-talkie to his buddy and tell him, hey, start lifting me up. And the guy would put it in gear and floor it. Can you believe that? I'm like, ah, I don't even want to see this. <laughs> so I go out there to help this technician guy with our equipment. So I go out there and I'm with this, this the, the, uh, guy that I become pretty good friends with because of our communication. And I can understand him. We go out there, this redneck who did this job came out to meet me. And he introduced himself, and literally, I could not understand him. It was like this. NASCAR. I understood NASCAR. I'm like, I love racing too, bro. Love race cars, man. I'm looking at my buddy like, what in the world is that? It was crazy. I could not understand a thing he said. So it was like, um, we would have, in eight hours, we accomplished about one hour of work. Because he would say something like, I'd look at my buddy. What did he just say? Oh, okay. And then I would replace, uh, and then he, and then this guy'd be like, "What in the world did you say? You talk like a pansy. What did pansy here say? Right?" He said to change the bearing. He did not say anything about a bearing right there. It was crazy. <laughs> so it would be really helpful <laughs> to speak the same language. So I don't think God's problem is unity. In fact, in Revelation seven verse nine, at the end of the story, God says, "I have gathered people." from every tongue, every tribe, every nation, that there will be a unified kingdom. That's where things headed. So, so that's not the problem, right? Verse two then, how about that? And the people migrated from the east and they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Now I will make one note on this. In Genesis, really the Old Testament, when you go east, most of the time, you're moving away from God. So when Adam and Eve sin in the garden, they head which direction? East out of the garden. When Cain kills his brother Abel in chapter four and begins to run away, where does he head? East, right? So there is a theme in the Bible that when you are leaving, it's called the Ha'adits, the land, the promised land, you head east away from it. So there is that, but... That's not the problem. God ultimately wants the earth filled. So at some point, you're going to have to move east. So that's not the problem. Well, maybe verse three is. And they said to one another, come, 
Let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Here's this brilliant new technology. Up to this point, if you wanted to build a city with walls that protect you from wild animals and you're secure, you needed rock or wood. So there was areas of the Fertile Crescent, Mesopotamia, where there's just plains of nothing. So you couldn't do anything out there, even though, man, the river's there, even though agriculturally you would dominate, they couldn't until they developed this technology. You can take a certain kind of dirt, form it, bake it, and it becomes a building material. And now we can make cities wherever we want. So this is a radical, new, incredible technology. Opens up new places for them. In fact, it opens up now the ability, verse four, then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city. Is this the last straw? Does God hate cities? Did he want farmers and instead now he's getting hipsters and he's angry? Is that the problem? Right? I'll put it really simply for us in Southern Oregon. Is Portland bad? <laughs> Is Portland bad? I would say yes, and I would say no, right? So I spent time up in Portland. For the last four years, I've gone up there three times a year for a couple of weeks at a time. And for sure, there are things in Portland that are bad. Like immorality is more on display in Portland, right? There's this guy who refused to wear clothing and he would ride his bike around the area that I would usually be in, around that part of Mount Tabor. I'd be like, oh my goodness, dude, come on, right? I tell people, if you go to Portland, don't buy tickets to the zoo. Buy a day pass on the max. That's where you see the wildlife. You see things on the map you cannot believe. Like, what in the world? There's this guy. He dresses up like Darth Vader. He rides a unicycle and plays the bagpipes that breathe out fire. Where are you going to see that except in Portland? I mean, how cool is that? There's a, uh, uh, you, if you've been there, you've seen them. There's these marauding gangs of moped riders. Have you seen them? Like just, it'll be like, all of a sudden there's 50 moped riders. They're all around you and you don't have to be afraid of them because they get off, drink coffee and they start knitting. You're like, oh my goodness. And I was afraid of you guys, forget it. They're knitting like a, a sword to get you. Like, well, I'll get you with my sword. Fine, get me with it. So there's like, okay, Portland, all right. That's, that's weird, all right, fine. But I'll tell you, there are some really good things about city, about Portland. So I made this decision when I started going to Portland, I wouldn't stay in hotels. I stayed in a youth hostel. And at times it was hostile, but I still stayed there. I mean, it was sold actually in my third year. So the fourth year I started Airbnb, Airbnb, a, that's a great word, uh, a room in somebody's home, right? I made sure that I had lunch or hung out with or talked with people that were very, very different from me. Atheist, agnostic, an ex-Christian that was just, uh, it, was, it was really fascinating conversation. People that saw the Bible way, way differently than me, right? Twice I rode the Greyhound bus. Someone just said, ooh. <laughs> it, it, it was amazing to do that. So I'd be in seminary for like two weeks 
And then I would get on the max and I would go across Portland and then I'd go to the Greyhound bus station. It's like going from heaven to hell. <laughs> I've just descended into the darkness. But here's what I believe. If Jesus lived today, he'd ride the Greyhound bus. In fact, I met him twice on the bus. <laughs> right? So why did I do all those things? To break the bubble. See, Grant's Pass, listen to me. When's the last time you had a conversation in Grant's Pass with a Muslim? Never. Right? How important will it be for us to understand Islam if we're ever going to be able to share our faith with them, share Jesus with them? See, what the city does is it breaks your bubble. Whatever kind of cocoon you manage to grow up in, the city will break that because you'll encounter people that are very different from you. And if you don't know your faith, if you have not owned your faith, it'll cause you to own your faith. Like Portland helped me in so many ways. I, I can't describe it. Like I really said, this is what I believe. This is how I think things should be. And by talking with people, an atheist, an agnostic, an ex-Christian, what they did is they sharpened me because then I was able, oh, that doesn't work for that situation. Well, I better restudy. I better really apply myself. Man, that city is brilliant like that. It's good. But here, here's maybe the biggest reason. So in Grants Pass, this little bubble, and I love Grants Pass. It's my city. It's my place. But I could argue I'm a good preacher here. When you look around at the other churches, I can argue I'm a good preacher. Right? In Portland, I would go, I love church. So I would go to morning Bible studies at places at 6.30 and rush back to campus by eight o'clock. I would find the most diverse church I could and go to that church and just, just as many as I could during those two weeks. And there was many times I would sit in a seat like you guys, listening to somebody up here preach. And I would think to myself, that's it, I'm resigning. I'm gonna teach the nursery from now on. Oh, that guy is brilliant. Brilliant. See, the city humbled me. Because here in Grants Pass, I'm good. And, and people are nice enough. They're like, that's the best sermon I've ever heard. But in the back of my mind now, I have Portland saying, Matt, at best, you're average. At best, you're average. And that is healthy because it keeps you humble. But the other thing it did for me is this. It made me hungry. I want to preach like that. Today, 2017, I study harder today than I ever have in my life. Why? Because I'm hungry. I want to preach well. I want to contextualize the gospel. I want to talk about what actually matters. I don't want to answer questions from the 16th century or the 19th century or the 20th century. I want to answer the things that matter to people today. So it causes me to study. It left me humble and hungry. So city, man, it's good and bad. I don't think the city is the problem. And parents, if you're here trying to say, I'm in Southern Oregon to protect my children from the city, let me tell you something. There's this new technology, not brick and bitumen. It's called the interwebs. Now the city has come to us. And the question that you think you can avoid because it's coming from whatever liberal, it's coming out through social media. It's coming at your kids. And that's healthy if you walk it out royal. Like how do we own our faith in the 21st century? That, that's what it's gonna do to you. And that is super, super healthy. So I don't think the city is the problem. In fact, if you know the whole Bible, it begins in a garden, but it ends in a city. It's called the Garden City of New Jerusalem, and it becomes the hub of the new kingdom where king, our King Jesus 
is on his throne and you and I get to serve him and partner with him in kingdom work for eternity. So no, no way. City's not the problem, but it's what they do in the city. Notice, here we begin to get to what I believe is why God says, this is the last straw. And they built a tower with its top in the heaven. A tower with its top in the heaven. Very important phrase. This tower, what it represents is their religious system. It represents what the city is about. This is our highest point. This is what we put all of our emphasis on. We're gonna build this tower. I think every city has a tower that tells you what its God is. It's high place. New York City. The tallest buildings in New York City are given to what? What God? Money, baby. You go to New York City to what? To make money. The tall buildings are money buildings. Washington, D.C. You take a picture of Washington, D.C. What does Washington, D.C. rise up to? What's the God of Washington, D.C.? Donald Trump. I mean, um, politics. <laughs> right? If you, go, if you want power, you go to Washington, D.C. That's their God. So New York City, it's got his money, but DC, you don't go there to make money. You go there as a power broker. I want power, right? Portland, what's its God? To be weird, right? Literally, that's it. Keep Portland weird. They want to say, of all the big cities in America, we're the weird ones, and they're proud of it. Ashland, what's its God? The goddess of kale, no doubt about it. How about us? What's our God? What's on our high point? What's the highest place in Grants Pass? What do we have there? Caveman. Someone got it right here. Go uptown. What's the high point? The highest point of Grants Pass has a giant statue of our God, caveman. Oh my goodness. You got to love being a caveman in Grants Pass. So what this is, this is a system that's saying, hey, this is what we're about. This is what we are driven to do. We're going to build this tower, but notice where it's supposed to terminate. How high was it supposed to be? The heavens. Here's why. There is in every one of us a drive to connect with greatness. It's absolutely in every one of us. We have this drive. I want to be part of, I want to connect with, I want to sample, I want to be part of greatness. Do you know why that's in us? It's an echo of Eden because in the garden, Adam and Eve had dinner every night with who? God. They were connected with greatness. They didn't build a tower. No one built a tower in the garden. Why? Because every night they connected with greatness, but there was this fault line, Genesis chapter three, where that connection to greatness was severed. And now each of us were looking for some way. I want to be reconnected to greatness. So their tower, they say, we want to get all the way back to connect. We want to reconnect with greatness. Have you ever sat and thought about why is the world so consumed with celebrities? It's illogical to me, right? Why do we care that Brad Pitt is losing weight right now? Right? I get Google News. So I'll go through Google News every single day. Listen, it, for the past two months, one of the main stories on their top stories on Google News is what? Brad Pitt lost some more weight. 
before and after picture. Look at him. What's happening with him? Why do I care? I don't know. Why? Because somehow we think if we could connect with that greatness, it would do something for us. Somehow we believe if I could just build a tower to Brad Pitt, it'd make me so happy. That's in us. In fact, it's, it's in our church a little bit right now. So we hired John Micah Sumrall, and he's been brilliant, man. I've really enjoyed being around him. He's got a lot of energy, a lot of creativity and stuff. But if you don't know, for years he did Cutlass. And and that had a big effect on a certain generation of Edgewater people. So so now this will happen to me from time to time. I'll be like, you know, walking around whatever at church. That generation will come to me like, hey. And I think they want to talk to me. They're like, hey, yeah, what's up? I heard you guys hired John Micah. Yeah, yeah, we did. Where's he at? He's right over there. Go get him, all right? He can be your high tower. Go ahead, go get him. <laughs> it's so funny. It's like, connect. I can connect with greatness over here. It's so fun. It's all in us. Why? Because each one of us knows in our memories, we used to dine with God. And that connection now has been broken. And we want it back. So they think we can build this tower. And if we make it high enough, we will reconnect with God. So God comes down and intervenes in this thing. And here's the system he's trying to break. The word Babel today, we would say an infant babbles. It means confusion. You can't understand it. But the original word Babel actually meant the gate of God. This city was named the gate of God. We're going to build a city. And in this side of the city, we're going to make this tower. And the tower is going to make it to heaven because we're going to be the gate to get back to God. It's this idea, this is the shadow that begins to loom over the rest of the Bible. The shadow is this. You can, by your own tower building, make it back into heaven and reconnect with God. And that's the final shot for God. He goes, no way. That's not how this system works. No way. I'm not doing it that way. There'll be no tower building to get back to me. There's going to be one way to get back to me. and It'll be me coming down to you, right? And in church today, sadly, there's these lingering effects of Babel and us, of tower building, where we believe that there's these certain kind of things that we can do, and somehow, if we build it, God has to come. It's in parents, like parents. If we do these things for our children, they will punch out these perfect faith-filled kids, Well, I have not found that formula yet. In fact, 2,000 years, nobody has discovered that formula. If you have it, tell me, right? We'll write the greatest parenting book in history. But it doesn't exist. Because their idea was this. If we do these things, God will be indebted to us. We can control him and he will owe us. And God says, I'm going to scatter that idea. I'm going to destroy that idea. There's no such thing. Accountability groups. Now, there's good parts of accountability groups. But there's also a really bad part to it, a babble to it, that they say this, okay, you're addicted to porn or you're addicted to drugs, or you're addicted to whatever it is. Carry out these steps and you'll be set free. I say, oh, that's dangerous. Dangerous because the Bible says whom the son has set free is free indeed. Jesus sets people free. Can he use accountability groups? Sure, but it's not that formula. It's not those steps that set you free. That's tower building. If you give this percentage of your income, man, you will be successful. God will give back to you. That hasn't always happened in history. 
right? So we have these ways that we can still build towers and we can think we'll make God indebted to us. We will control him. It's really this, here's what happens. Here's what God says no more of. Mankind started to make God in their own image. It's a reversal of Genesis chapter one, where man is made in God's image. From now on throughout the Old Testament, here's what you see. The gods of the Old Testament are very human-like. Gods of sex, gods of fame, gods of power, gods of money, they become very human-like. And that you can, by incantation or ritual, cause that God to do what you want. And God says that system is broken I'm going to end it. It's exactly Romans chapter one. It says that God's wrath is being revealed. Why? Because we took God and we made him like created things. We made God in our image. So God says no more. But leading right on that, we're gonna make a tower. And then number two, we're gonna make a name for ourselves. I think they've followed together. When you are disconnected from greatness, when your tower does not reach the heavens, then the next thing you have to do is, I have to make a name for myself. I'm gonna hop on the hamster wheel of human competition and I will show them how great I am. If I can't connect with greatness, then I'll just show them how great I am. That's in all of us. Philippians 2 calls it empty glory. That every single one of us has this empty glory in us. What we are supposed to be in Genesis 1, now there's this empty glory. So now the worst thing in the world is not to fight or have vengeance or violence. The worst thing that you can imagine for most people is this, to be ignored or insignificant or not to matter. Those are our big ones. I'll fight, I'll do all that, as long as I'm not insignificant, as long as I matter, as long as people know my name. Everyone wants to go somewhere where everybody knows their name, right? It's true. So we get in this, this competition thing. Maybe the best example of empty doxa, how it prods us and pushes us, is from Winston Churchill. So if you know history, Winston Churchill won World War II. He's that brilliant. He's an amazing dude. But after World War II, his star falls. It's actually kind of sad. So there's a story about him and a, a servant of his and they end up in this fight and they kind of reconcile and later they have this conversation and Churchill says to his servant, you know, you hurt me. And the servant says, yeah, but you hurt me. To which Churchill responds, yes, but I am a great man. I'll tell you, there's a spot in all of our lives where we're just like Winston Churchill. You can't treat me like that. Don't you know who I am? Maybe it's with your kids. Maybe it's with your family. Maybe it's at your work. There's a place where every single one of us is just like Winston Churchill. Yes, but don't you know who I am? You can't treat me like that. That's the empty doxa that pushes us. And it's starting to change our society. Like if you follow business, 2017 is ramping up to be the year of bankruptcies. Do you know that? In the first three months of this year, more major corporations have filed bankruptcy than in all of 2016 combined, right? Sears. Sears has been around forever, right? They're going bankrupt. JCPenney's, Macy's, Sports Authority, 
pay less. Radio Shack. How is Radio Shack still in business? Like that's when I'm like, what? In the I thought they were gone. I mean, who buys anything from Radio Shack? So anyways, they're gone. Now they're trying to figure out what in the world is happening. What's happening to our economy? And some say it's Amazon, but there's this other statistic that's, that's rolling around in people's mind right now that's, no, something else is going on. Because since 2005 in America, we have doubled our spending since 2005. 2005, by the way, is the beginning of social media, MySpace, Facebook. Since 2005, we have been doubling the amount of money every year that we spend on restaurants and bars. Last year, 2016, for the first time in American history, consumers have spent more money on restaurants and bars than on shopping for food. Now, why is that? Instagram. It's Instagram, right? Nobody's posting a picture of themselves buying flour and oats from Winco. Check it out. Woohoo! Look at it. Oatmeal tomorrow morning, bro. <laughs> no one's posting a picture of buying a fanny pack from the Gap. Look at that thing. Woo! Oh, but a nice meal with some bros around, some gals around. Look at us, look at this food. That's going on Instagram. So now there is this, this push. And I'm not against any of those things, man. Enjoy it, share that stuff. But there's a push now for your name. Look at me, look at how many likes I got. It's in us, the empty doxa. And it's actually changing right now our economy radically. It's Instagrammable moments. If you want to start a business, you better have in your business Instagrammable moments because that's propelling the spending of Americans right now. We're going to make a name for ourselves. What's fascinating to me is you, you, you just jump right to the next chapter, chapter 12, which I love. I can't wait till next week. Chapter 12 is the undoing of what happened in Babel. It's God straightening out the crookedness of Babel. So what you see there is this. God looks at Abraham, makes a covenant with him, calls him covenants with him. And part of the covenant is this. I will make your name great. All right. Does anyone here know a single name of the people who worked on the Tower of Babel? Huh? Who doesn't know the name of Abraham? Right? The three great religions, the three great monotheistic religions, Islam, Christianity, Judaism, all say Abraham's the father of our faith. There's at least 4 billion people right there, right? God made his name great. This idolater from Ur of the Chaldeans, unknown, becomes whole. God will later grab this shepherd boy named David, who his own dad forgot about him. And God says to David, 2 Samuel chapter 7, I'll make your name great. Who doesn't know about King David? Listen to this, Edgewater. It's Revelation 2.17. God says this to each one of us. I'll give you a name. Ultimately, we're going to follow Babel's path to names. I'm going to build my tower. I'm going to do these things. I'm going to make my name great. Or we'll follow the Bible's path to a name. And here's what perplexes me as a pastor. I get sent information because of my position. They get whatever. Your name gets on a list somewhere. So they'll send me a free copy of Relevant Magazine, which I always think is like, that's the most ridiculous name ever. 
The fact that you put your name as relevant means you're irrelevant to me. I'm not reading it, right? But, but leadership, whatever. I get all these magazines and they'll be, hey, as a pastor in the 21st century, you have to market yourself. Make sure you're out there. Make sure you have these many posts on this and that and that. All these accounts. Make sure you're doing all this stuff because you got to get your name out there. Because it perplexes me. Jesus actually tells the believer how to be great, right? He looks at his 12 disciples. He gathers them and says, hey, boys, if you want to be great. Jesus doesn't then say, that's the wrong drive. Listen, there is no, no bad thing about wanting to be great. Be great. Absolutely. Be the greatest you possibly can. Totally. But Jesus says, if you want to be great, here's how you do it. Learn to be the servant of all. I have yet to read that article. Hey, pastor, if you want to be great, if you want to make your name great, here's how you do it. Serve your kids and serve your wife and serve your neighbors and serve the people that God has put around you because that, that's what Jesus said. That article needs to be written. <laughs> that's how you do it. You're either going to follow Babel's path, build your own tower, or you're going to trust the Bible's path. It says, serve, serve. So what does God do now? God does two things and I'm done. He scatters them and he stops them, verse eight. Why does God do that? I believe both of these are God's grace. So God scatters the people no longer unified. Why would God do that? He diversifies, if you would, humanity. In all these different kind of cultures, here's why I believe he does that. When you invest your money, you are told to what? Diversify your investment. Buy some gold, buy a home, buy some stocks. That way, if one goes down, the other two are doing better. You diversify. I think God splits up humanity because he says, from now on, I'm not going to let one group sink my mission to renew humanity. So I'm going to diversify. So if one group goes down, the other groups will still be fine because I have a plan for all the nations. And that plan is I'm going to come and I'm going to renew a kingdom. I'm going to redeem them. So that's why God scatters. Diversify. It's like uh, the bulkheads in a ship. Like the Titanic, it was a bad design, but it had all these different bulkheads. The reason why they said it's unsinkable is, hey, look, if one goes bad, it's not going to sink our ship. The problem with the Titanic was it was bad steel and it went, the rip went all the way through all the bulkheads. It's God saying, I need bulkheads in this thing so that there'll always be a culture that's maintaining some semblance of the Imago Dei. Yes, flawed. Yes, broken. Yes, all that stuff. And secondly, he stops them from building the tower. What they had put all their effort into to stay safe and secure to keep their family around them, relationships, economy, everything. Everything's wrapped up in this and God puts a stop to it. No more. Have you ever lost something that was really precious to you? Maybe it was a job. Maybe a career. Maybe your family. Have you ever lost something that was really precious to you, a business that went bankrupt. And you sit here and you wonder, God, why did that happen to me? I'm confused. Why would you let this happen to me? Why would you let the tower that I've 
poured my life into, why would you let it be broken down? Could I suggest today that maybe that was God's grace? That maybe just like this city was gonna warp people and their perception of God, thinking they could make their own way up to God. Maybe, just maybe, your desire and your passion for that one thing was gonna warp you and destroy you. And so God says, for your betterment, I have to take it away. I'm gonna stop you from pouring your life into that thing. God doesn't always stop people from doing what they want. Read Romans 1. Three times it says God gave them up. Go ahead do what you want is God's, what's God saying there. Go ahead. If you want to destroy your own life, go ahead. Or my favorite is Psalm 106, verse 15. God gave them their request. God, we want this. God, we want this. Give me this thing. Take it. But sent leanness to their soul. Okay, you can have that. But your soul now is going to be lean. What you could have been, what you could have done is going to be gone. See, I think God is a really, really good father. And he actually wants you and me to be happy. That's my belief. I get that from Genesis 1, that God makes a really good spot, puts Adam and Eve in it so that they can flourish and be happy. But we're like little kids that want to just eat candy and ice cream. And so God at times has to put a stop to things. No, that will destroy you. We think that's going to make us happy and it won't. I'll give you one example and I'm done. Fame today. If you interviewed enough kids, teenagers, and you asked them, what do you want to be when you grow up? Number one now, the majority of kids will say, I want to be famous. Doesn't matter in what, I want to be famous. That is a change from every other generation that that study has been done on. So now these experts are looking in like, why is that happening? Is it YouTube and kind of the flattening like it seems possible for anybody? They don't think so. Experts now are saying, this is why. There's this drive now to be famous. It's because of the broken home. That what happens in the broken home is this, kids are designed by God to receive love from mom and dad. And now they're not receiving that love from mom and dad the way they're supposed to. And so they have this empty doxa that now says, if I could just get a bunch of people to love me, then I would be happy. So I want to be famous because then a bunch of people will love me and fill that emptiness that I have in me. But the truth is, famous people aren't happy. That's the truth. A famous person is four times more likely than the general population to commit suicide. You know why? Because they built their tower to heaven and they're on top of it. And guess what? It didn't reach. They didn't make it. They got everything they want and didn't make it. That's why. So God will say, I got to take this from you. Matt, I got to take this from you. So that's Babel. This is the system that God says, that's the final thing. You cannot make me like you. So chapter 12 is massive in this because what you have in chapter 12 is God saying, this is actually what I'm like. And it's brilliant. The revelation of God in chapter 12. If you get chapter 12, you get the whole Bible. It's that big of a chapter. You see God's character on display. He is saying, you guys were wrong, chapter 11. Now I'm gonna show what I'm like. And it's unbelievable. I can't wait till next week. But... I'll put it like this. The first 11 chapters of Genesis have one point. The whole book of Genesis has one point. 
I'm gonna say the whole Old Testament and the whole New Testament has one point and it's this. You gotta believe God is good and generous and put your trust in him. Put your faith in him. That's the whole book. You gotta believe that God is good and generous and put your trust and hope in him. That's what Abraham does. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So we do this every Sunday. We come to the Lord's Supper. This tells us that same thing. It's Romans 8.32. That if God spared not his only son, but delivered him up for us, how shall he not with him give us all good things? God doesn't withhold from us. Nothing that's good. So when we eat and when we drink, what we're supposed to be reminded of is, I trust my good and generous heavenly father. I trust my good and generous heavenly father. And this right here, this right here is reconnecting us to the Garden of Eden, where every night Adam and Eve would eat with God, connected to greatness. That's what we do right here. It's called the Lord's Supper. Be connected back to greatness. Have that empty doxa filled. That's what's supposed to happen by faith and trust. And Jesus, forgive me for building babbles and towers. for trying to make you indebted to me, for trying to create my own path to you. Forgive me of that. May I know that it's your call and your covenant that opens the door back to your greatness. Forgive me for trying to make my name great. when I'm just supposed to serve those around me. I pray for those in here today, this afternoon, who maybe have lost something and they've wondered why and are confused by it. May they know that you are a good and generous God who wants them ultimately to flourish and be happy. And maybe, just maybe, it was your grace that took away a tower that would never get them what they wanted. And may they trust you more. So I pray that we would eat and we would drink satisfaction and filling, connectedness to you, and I pray this in your name. Amen.